I'm Mark Reed Edwards, Chief Marketing Officer at HFS. Welcome to this HFS video cast of a discussion between Saurabh Gupta, HFS President of Research and Advisory Services, and Dan Burnett, Executive Director of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. So let's hand things over to Saurabh to get things underway. Saurabh, take it away. Hey, thanks, Mark, and, and welcome, Dan. Um, look, I think I, we've been researching the enterprise blockchain space, Dan, for the last five years or so. And what we are seeing now is a big surge in use of public blockchains for enterprise use cases. Uh, in fact, we just completed a research where Ethereum came across as the number one blockchain platform of choice for enterprise use cases. So I thought who better to sort of ask some tough questions than, than get you uh, here. Uh, so, so why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, Dan, and you know, what is this Ethereum Enterprise Alliance? Uh, what's your mission? What does success mean to you guys? Sure, sure. So, um, so uh, boy, let's say I actually, I'll just say a little bit about myself very briefly. Um, I have a technical background. So I have a doctorate in computer science, uh, and this is using neural networks for speech recognition which uh, basically means machine learning before it was really called machine learning broadly. Um, so that's where I began, but I, I, I shifted pretty quickly to doing web and internet standards. And so for more than 20 years, um, I've, I've, spent, uh, I've spent my time building more than a dozen standards um, for the web and the internet, uh, including a couple uh, that, that you may or may not have heard of recently, WebRTC, which underlies a lot of the peer-to-peer -peer video calling that we do. Um, and verifiable credentials and decentralized identifiers, which are being used increasingly uh, for uh, digital identity and identity, you know, uh, self-sovereign identity. Um, the EEA, let's see, the EEA, EEA was founded in, uh, in 2017, and originally it was started uh, to provide support for what was called Enterprise Ethereum at the time. And what that meant was the private networks, not the use of the public Ethereum network. So same technologies, but consortium networks where a group of banks or, or some other group would get together and, um, and run their own network. Um, obviously you don't get the massive decentralization benefits from doing that, but, um, but it was the reason that that was happening at the time and was needed at the time was because Ethereum was new. People weren't sure they could trust it. Um, and so that was, that was where we began. We began doing standards there. We've definitely migrated. In fact, um, you know, we started adding uh, mainnet focused work, I would say, uh, I think probably 2019, maybe. So we were already beginning to incorporate uh, support for um, standards or, or other discussions around mainnet Ethereum and use of, of public mainnet Ethereum at that time. Now, um, I joined in 2020 and my goal since then has been to help the EA continue to grow to, um, to support businesses. And I think we, we've actually shifted even within the past six months to where we're now talking about uh, ourselves as, as supporting uh, professional and commercial development. And I think that's, that's really how, how we see ourselves going forward at this point um, is that it's, uh, there's this, uh, you know, the Ethereum community and blockchain in general is a little bit of a hobbyist culture still. Um, and that's the best, best term I have for it. Uh, and I've been through a, a number of those in my life and career. Um, and, and we're trying to get beyond the hobbyist, the hobbyist only, right? 
it's great. Hobbyists innovate and they move quickly and so on, but it doesn't really become mainstream until you, you get out to where, uh, you know, every business on the planet uses it. So that is, that is what we're focused on. You'll often hear people within the, uh, within the blockchain space and particularly within the Ethereum space talking about onboarding the next billion developers. But we're interested in onboarding the next billion users because it is when it makes its way out into the world and all of my relatives who are non-technical at all um, are using it on, a, on an everyday basis, then we'll know that it's, it's really mainstream. And that's what we're about. Increasingly, we are, we're focusing on reaching outside of what I would call the crypto bubble. Yeah, and I think that's, that's why EEA is so special for us uh, at HFS because our mission, Dan, is also to educate enterprises on not just what the technology is, but on how they can actually use to create some value. Right, and, and I think we, we focus a lot on the features and functionality versus educating enterprises and clients on what can they do with the technology, what business problems can they solve? And, and right. talking about that, you know, there's, you know, in this hobbyist uh, world, there's just so many terms floating around, right? We started with crypto, are we still in that crypto bubble? It bursts sometimes and then it again builds up um, we, we obviously talked about blockchain and smart contracts, private versus public. Now there's this whole new world of NFTs and CBDCs and, you know, Web3 is now coming into picture. Simplify that for, for us, right, a, a little bit. How does, how does all this fit together? Where does Ethereum uh, Enterprise Alliance play into this? Um, you know, what, how, how should a average business owner look at all these things? Right, I think there's a, um, one of the things that I, we've noticed when we look out at the material that's, that's publicly available um, for explaining the technology, one of the things we often see is that the material is either too high level or too deeply technical. And this is a real problem for many business people. Um, you, can, you can feel, you, you can get this sense that you know what it's about, without actually being able to use it or do anything with it yet. Um, so I always like to start you know, with an explanation, a brief explanation that you know, everyone's heard of Bitcoin, okay? Everyone has heard of Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin, Bitcoin was the beginning of sort of this trend. And I'm not talking about like when first research happened or any of that, but I'm talking about when this really you know, became a thing, it was Bitcoin that started it. And the real innovation there, of course, was the, uh, the consensus algorithm. The whole idea is that um, whether you're dealing with money or a variety of other uh, transactions, any transaction really, between two parties who don't know each other, there always needs to be a third party in the middle, okay? There's this, and it, usually it's a human or it's an organization. There's someone who's that middleman between, between those two parties. And so what the innovation with Bitcoin was to realize that you can actually take a group of computers and have that, the group of computers all, all operate in their self-interest competing to write transactions onto a ledger that they all share and can all view. And that was the real innovation. So instead of like right now, if, if I call my bank, if I look at my bank statement and, and, uh, and um, you know, my bank says I have a certain amount of money and, and I think I have a different amount of money, the bank is the one who says how much money I have. 
right? Right. They are the ultimate arbiters of what transaction actually occurred. And there could be any number of, of issues with that from, um, from fraud to, uh, to hack, you know, unintentional, you know, hacking or other, other kinds of, uh, uh, of, of things that would get in the way of that transaction being correct. Okay, so now what we have instead is a collection of computers who all compete to be the ones to, to post that transaction and no one, none of those computers know which one is gonna get to do it. So in, in other words, it's fairly safe to do it this way. But now what you have is there's no one party who gets to decide what's the actual real transaction that got posted. What you have is this collection of computers that do it and we can all trust it. That's the point is that it's created in a way that you can trust the result um, without requiring a human or an organization in the middle to make that happen. Now, the use of this technology to create a digital currency or a cryptocurrency is only one use. And Vitalik Buterin is, is credited with you know, realizing, hey, that's just a computer program that's making that part happen. We can use this consensus algorithm to do any kind of transaction. In fact, allow a computer program that can do any computation you can think of, any business logic you can think of. So not just, do I have enough money to do this transaction? Like, do I have enough Bitcoins and, and then transferring Bitcoins? No, you can do a lot more than that. And that's what smart contracts are on Ethereum. So Bitcoin is an application. Ethereum is a platform. Ethereum has the Ethereum virtual machine on which these smart contracts operate and allow you to build all kinds of, of solutions. And so everything that we hear from NFTs to other cryptocurrencies to everything else is all built on Ethereum or other comparable chains. And Ethereum was the first and is the longest running and most stable of those chains. So I had to, I had to get that in there. I'm going to mention it a few times. I, I think that's why we're seeing the success that we are. No, I think, I think that's fair. Even our data suggests that <clears throat> Ethereum has emerged from an enterprise perspective, at least that's what we focus on, Dan, has emerged as, right. the, as the number one platform of choice for creating enterprise use cases on blockchain. But the one question that I still have is, are we still in the hype phase? Are we beyond the hype phase? Uh, you, you know, where, where do you think we are um, with respect to uh, enterprise blockchain, right? It's, there's still a lot of naysayers, right? In, within enterprises, uh, let's be honest about that, right? And, and where do you think we there, are from an adoption perspective? Yeah, there, there absolutely are. I mean, if even though what you and I are talking about is enterprise deployments, enterprise use, we're not talking, this is important, we're not talking about cryptocurrencies, we're not talking about NFT speculation or anything like that. Okay? We're talking about the sort of regular everyday use of this technology for business purposes. Um, and, and what we, we know that more people are aware of it. That doesn't mean they understand it as I, as I talked about already, um, and unfortunately, popular sound bites, news sound bites are still all about the dangers of those other things. Okay. So, interest in even business use is impacted by popular, uh, popular cycles of boom and bust in cryptocurrency prices. But for the most part, deployments continue. The Ethereum network continues to run, and businesses are continuing to steadily deploy on it. Um, 
but it's really important. There are naysayers. I think, I think largely the naysayers are out there because they haven't gotten the right information. They've been hearing, they've been hearing horror stories. They've been hearing, uh, they've been hearing about problems instead of hearing about what continues to work, right? So I said it glibly just now that the Ethereum network continues to run. There may be applications that fail, okay? And then there may be news, news stories about particular applications that fail, but the core underlying network of Ethereum continues to run. Now, if you look at um, private networks, so consortium, private consortium networks versus use of the public mainnet, we are seeing that transition ourselves as well, more away from using your own private network to using public ones. And I think, um, I think a lot of the, the fear was around the use of a public network. Um, and what we're seeing now is less fear as we educate people about the public network. We've, put, we've been putting out a series of primers and also our, um, our Ethereum business readiness report. And that, that in particular was released to begin to address these concerns by showing not use cases, but case studies. There's an important distinction here. I always say use cases are for uh, sellers, case studies are for buyers, right? Use cases right. are what you could do. Case studies are what you actually did and you can demonstrate really works today. So that was our goal was to actually, was to identify case studies, real deployments, and to talk about the implications uh, of that on, uh, you know, for, for business owners who might be considering this, to give them real information, as well as a real framework for uh, understanding how to think about, um, you know, which way they want to go. Do they want to do a private network? Do they want to operate on public network? What are the trade-offs there? Yep. No, I think, I think we have seen an uptick in adoption of public blockchains um, like Ethereum. Is this, is this attributed solely to education or do you think there have been technological advancements like zero knowledge proofs comes to mind immediately, but there could be others, you know, talk to us a little bit, how, how have public blockchains become safer and more effective for businesses to use to run their transactions? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, uh, when, when we started, we used to talk about the, the reason for having a private chain was the three Ps, um, privacy, per, permi uh, privacy, permissioning, and performance. Okay, those were the three things that you couldn't guarantee to get on the public blockchain, but that businesses needed. They needed to know that their transactions would be private. They needed to know that they could control, the permissioning aspect was important, who can participate in, in creating, adding transactions and who can't. And as you look at conversations in the world today, there are big discussions about when someone should be permitted to operate within a particular network or not. And businesses, businesses need that. And then of course there's performance, right? And there's the need to scale up uh, arbitrarily as you increase the number of transactions. And what we've been seeing is um, in ways in which those are being addressed now in the public network. So for the, from the privacy perspective, the zero knowledge proofs are doing that, okay? so. Zero knowledge proofs are essentially a way to record that you know a piece of information unequivocally, but to do it without giving any information, anything, any tips, any hints about that information. So you can always prove to someone later that, yep, that is the information, but you don't have to reveal the info to do it. Um, it's, it's like a password that you never have to reveal. Um, and so that's a, new, uh, that's a new technology that is improving uh, opportunities for, for privacy. 
Uh, on the permissioning front, what we're seeing at both, both permissioning and performance, what we're seeing is layer twos and side chains. And the difference I would say is that, um, you know, a, a side chain is another network that does some operations. You do, you do transactions there. And then maybe it actually records a state uh, on, the, on the main Ethereum public chain, for example, but that's the only relationship. A layer two is designed to build directly on top of Ethereum in such a way that, um, that you inherit all of the decentralization and security properties of the main layer one network. Now, in order to do that, you essentially what you have to do is ensure that any, any disagreements, any disputes on the layer two get resolved on layer one. And that's, that's all that's needed. So what the layer twos are providing is greater scalability as in greater performance. And they do that by being able to batch transaction, transactions essentially, right? You can run a whole large number of transactions on this other network and then sum them up, you roll them up and that's what you essentially record onto the Ethereum mainnet. Um, you also, as far as, um, so that was the, as far as permissioning, um, you can do that via layer two or a side chain. Again, you're running on another network uh, and where you, you have requirements for who can participate, but you're always making sure that you're tied back to that, the, the original network in terms of this, do I trust that the computers are acting as that independent third party instead of a human or, uh, you know, or, a, or a, um, an organization of some sort. So really what's changed is, the, um, is, is those things, those technological changes have allowed for that move. And I think it's great because um, you, know, you don't have to do your own infrastructure, right? So if you, if you were considering using a private or consortium chain, you need to run, you or the, the folks in your network need to run all of the nodes in that network. That may not be the case if you're going to an application running on public Ethereum. You actually don't have to run a node at all if you're doing an application there. If you have a layer two, maybe you're participating in one of those nodes of the network, but you've done it in such a way that your security is provided by that original core network. So you, you're not responsible for the security uh, of that network, at least from a, uh, from a blockchain perspective. Yeah, no, that's, that's super helpful. And the, the other concern that I always, not always, but often hear is, is around the environmental impact uh, of, of using blockchain and the carbon footprint, et cetera. Now, on one hand, we see blockchain to be extensively being used for carbon accounting and you know, helping yes. uh, helping enterprises, you know, uh, meet some of the reporting compliance issues. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you always have, you know, conversations around the carbon footprint itself of of things like Ethereum or Bitcoin or what are right. what are what are you doing to to address some of some of that? Right. So um, there, interestingly. Um, all we're trying to do right now, the EA is education because the Ethereum, the Ethereum network, the developers who, 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 uh, who, um, who advance the core of Ethereum um, are planning the merge. As I'm sure everyone's heard about yes. it or many people have heard about it. It's coming, nobody never ever knows the exact date. I think the current prediction is sometime in September, um, but, but it's really looking like it's going to happen. It's gonna happen fairly soon. 
And so the, the idea with the merge is that we're transitioning the Ethereum public uh, mainnet Ethereum is transitioning from proof of work to proof of stake. And so those are two different consensus algorithms. And just yep. like I mentioned uh, at the beginning, um, the idea with, uh, with your consensus network is that uh, you don't know which computer is going to be record is going to get to record a transaction. That's important to make sure there's no ability to cheat. The way that was done with proof of work is essentially it's equivalent to like rolling dice. It's like you just make every computer roll dice. You know, here you have six dice, and I need six ones to come up, and you just keep rolling until you get those six ones. Okay, and the first one to do it gets to go. That's essentially the way it worked. There's a lot of wasted computation that's happened in that both Bitcoin and the original Ethereum network um, operate that way. But the change to proof of stake now uses a different randomness approach that is now, um, there's been a lot more a lot more research, a lot more uh, analysis to understand how to do that randomness in a way that doesn't require this long expensive process. Um, and to do it in such a way that people essentially put up a stake, node operators put up a stake, and if they cheat, they lose a portion up well a portion up to all of their stakes so you know it's not it's not worthwhile for them financially to cheat now um proof of stake networks have been created between the time ethereum was created and the merge you know in terms of other networks but the reason it hasn't happened yet for ethereum is because number one ethereum is continuing to run okay it's been an you know the, this changes uh, is often compared to you know, changing out the parts, changing out the engine of an airplane in flight, right? You're changing out parts right. while it has to keep flying. That's tricky to do. Um, but the other reason is that the Ethereum community really, really took its time to make sure that this will work and is safe to do. And so the nice thing about this is we're going to see, I think some of the reports from the Ethereum Foundation are predicting a greater than 99%, some, some people say 99.9% .9 reduction in energy use um, as we shift from proof of work to proof of stake. So the, the biggest concerns about wasted, you know, uh, wasted electricity essentially for running Ethereum are gonna largely go away. It's not that it's free to operate, but now the comparisons um, you know, between what would it take for human beings to do this job? Like what is the, what is the energy usage of a, a group of human beings and their computers sitting in an office building somewhere versus uh, the, you know, the, the Ethereum network doing this, it's, it's just gonna be a, a very, very quick and easy comparison. Um, I do like that you brought up the sustainability use cases. I always thought it was fascinating that people want to be able to do carbon offset tracking and use blockchains for it uh, because they know that uh, information can be written and not manipulated by someone after the fact. Um, and so people want to use this technology that has been accused of being, you know, planet destroying in the past um, to, to, to track carbon offsets. Well, the nice thing with Ethereum is that conversation about, you know, destroying the planet will hopefully be, be done in a few months. That's, that's super awesome. So, so tell us, besides, I, I think um, we both agree that carbon offset tracking, carbon accounting are, are, super interesting use cases or case studies. What are some of the other case studies or use cases or case studies as you, as you like to call them that have, are you excited by, uh, you know, and what's, what's, what sort of keeps you excited by some of the examples of using Ethereum in everyday lives? 
Yes, yeah. So um, uh, instead of just giving a list of use cases, I, I like the way you asked that question. There are, there are some case studies that I personally find just fascinating. Um, one of them is Acre Africa. So Acre Africa provides parametric insurance for small holding farmers in Africa. Um, you know, traditional insurance is, is loss-based, right? You, you pay a certain amount for your insurance premium. When you have a, a loss, you then try to convince the insurance company that you had that loss, and maybe they try to convince you you didn't. I mean, that, that's, a, that's not a very pleasant way of saying it, but the, the truth is there's, a, there's, an, um, there's an insurance adjuster process required when you're talking about loss. So a human being typically has to come out and make an assessment about how much loss there actually was. And this is an expensive and time-consuming process. It's so expensive and time-consuming that uh, it just doesn't work for these small holding uh, farms in, in Africa. Um, it's just not, it, it's not profitable for companies to offer insurance to them or for them to be able to afford it. And so what Acre Africa has done is parametric insurance. The way parametric insurance works is you pay uh, your insurance premiums and you get reimbursed if there is a clear trigger event that can be publicly independently verified, such as not having more, more than a certain amount of rainfall over a certain period, or the temperature, the high temperatures have remained at a certain level over a certain period, or this particular uh, governmental entity has declared a drought. Um, so, and an example, if you were in, in Florida, uh, it would be orange, your orange grows, right? You might actually get insurance against a late freeze because you know that that's gonna be devastating to your crops. Now, the nice thing about this is there's no, there's no independent, I mean, there's no analysis, there's no adjusting process required in order for this to work. The moment that thing occurs in the real world, it immediately triggers an automatic payment from the network. So your payments into the network are automatic. No human being has to handle them. They just go straight in from your, from your wallet to, um, you know, to the con smart contract. And then the payment, the payouts happen the same way. This event occurs, you get paid. And what it's done is it's reduced the, the time and the cost to a point where it's now actually cost-effective for both the provider and the farmers to afford this. So I think, I think this is wonderful. It's a great example of not only reaching new communities that were unable to, to, to have such insurance or any insurance before, but it's also a great example to other companies today who might say, yeah, why do we need to do that? Well, just look at, look at the cost savings and time savings we're talking about here. Why wouldn't you want it? It's kind of like, you know, the internet showing up and, and you saying, yeah, you know, I'd rather just mail the letter instead of send an email. I mean, nowadays yeah. we just shake our heads, right? That makes no sense. Okay, so that's one. Another one that I just want to point out that I find interesting is that um, Microsoft Azure now uh, uses a blockchain to track um, the, the supply, their supply chain for the components in their server, uh, server farms, right? So if you have big server clouds, you know, big server farms, excuse me, there are lots of parts, right? It's not just the machines, it's all different boards and it's the, you know, the power cables and zip. I mean, there's just tons of, of pieces of equipment. And so they actually track that, but the way they track it is by creating an NFT for each one. Now these NFTs are not public NFTs. They're not NFTs that, that go out uh, into a marketplace like OpenSea, but, they, but the reason they use that structure is because it turns out it's fabulous for carrying metadata about an item. 
So what they have are effectively internal assets. So and they're using the NFT standard for that on this supply chain uh, uh, product. And I just, uh, not product, uh, implementation. So I just, I really like that because it's a creative use of NFTs. Yeah, no, I think I think those are really fascinating case studies, um, Dan. I know I know you are a standards guy, Dan, so I, I didn't want to let you go without asking this question around Web3 and Metaverse, right? Where, frankly, there is no standard. There's not even a definition uh, that's commonly <laughs> uh, acceptable. And I think these, the blockchain world, the Web3 world and the metaverse are sort of convoluted uh, right now. Where do, you, where, do you see, where do you see Ethereum uh, Enterprise Alliance sort of playing a role as, as we start, as this Web3 metaverse uh, starts to gain momentum beyond just the hype? Right. We've been talking about that a, a good bit more internally. We're definitely seeing some groups beginning to form <clears throat> to talk about the metaverse and, and where, uh, where they might want to see standards. Um, you know, blockchain, blockchain technology is the foundation for all digital assets, essentially. And so when you're in the, meta, in the metaverse, payments are typically done using, well, it's not just payments. Every, everything that can be considered an asset is... <clears throat> ultimately has its existence on a blockchain. So, um, you know, digital assets are both a, a payment vehicle and an ownership vehicle. And we think that that is going to continue just like it has been. It actually began with games, right? It began even before blockchain with people selling items on eBay, right, from, from games. And so now we've seen those marketplaces be fully on, uh, on blockchains, which is really where they should be. Um, and so in the metaverse, I think we're, we're going to, we're going to see every asset be connected in that way. We also are expecting to see increasing tie-in to physical products and services. We're already seeing it with NFTs in general, but of course, um, many people would like a way to connect what they do in the metaverse with something that they do in the real world, even if it's just getting paid for what they create uh, within the metaverse. So um, we haven't yet, um, I don't think we've yet ourselves decided or, or, or uh, settled on what kinds of standards might be appropriate there. Um, but we are at the point where that needs to happen. There's enough interest in the metaverse. I would say, you would ask about the hype cycle for, for enterprise deployment of blockchain. I think, um, I think we've had early hype and, and now the hype is, has dropped somewhat and we're, we're having a steady deployment. We're not there yet. We're nowhere near that with the metaverse yet. We're still, what we're getting is a lot of hype and a lot of new innovation, a lot of creativity, but we are, we are a number of years away from seeing the same kind of real, uh, you know, institutional or enterprise adoption there. So I think, I think we have some time. We have some time to look at it and get it right. You know, um, the EA formed and, and was able to, to help initially with its enterprise focused, I should say enterprise chain focused standards. Um, but I think ultimately our greatest value is going to be what we are providing now as, as the, the world is really ready to move towards full adoption of Ethereum based uh, solutions. So we have some time. Uh, I don't think yeah. we're in a super rush. And if we, do, if we try to rush and do it too early, you can, you can end up with a lot of bad standards and a lot of wasted time. You've got, what you've got is enthusiasm, but you don't have wisdom yet in the space. Yeah. 
No, that's very nicely and eloquently put, Dan. And in fact, uh, when this whole blockchain rush started, you know, five or six years back, we came up with something called the blockchain bullshit buster, right? Which was, uh, <laughs> which was, <laughs> which was essentially a list of ten things that you know, if if those ten things are not met, then there's no use case for blockchain. You know, blockchain is not there for everything that you need. And I, I right. feel like we need a we need a metaverse BS buster as well, uh, because right now, <laughs> right now every AR VR uh, you know conversation is being termed as metaverse uh, altogether. But anyways, yeah, I think that was there was not a ready one. We're not at Ready Player One. We're nowhere near it. Okay, so you know if you want to look at a a popular example of uh, where one person's view of where the world could go. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So, last question, Dan. Um, if if you had one wish that could come true, what would what would that be? Yeah. So, um, so you know, Ethereum has really never enjoyed as much mainstream visibility as it does today. I'm I'm always surprised, still surprised when I I even I mention Ethereum, and again, non-technical people tell me they've heard of it. They've even heard of it. That wasn't the case even two years ago, right? Um, but again, the public discussion is pretty much focused on cryptocurrencies, consumer-facing DeFi, uh, NFTs for art or collectibles, and, and other use cases that really deal with finance or speculation. There's, there's just not as much visibility for the business use cases or, um, or, or uh, commercial um, you know, business use of DeFi. Um, and so my wish really is for more of these business use cases. I want, to, I want to be able to continue to demonstrate um, how Ethereum can solve real world business problems. Uh, we're doing it today. That report that we did is, is intended to be the first and not the last of those reports as we see more and more of those deployments. And ultimately, that's what we need. We need those deployments to come in. We need you to tell us about those case studies. So um, I, I know this is some material that that we can provide to you, but you know we uh, a link if you're if you're willing to put, to make that available. But we have a place where people can submit use cases and case studies. Um, please do send them in because this is what will make the difference. This is what will change it. You know, from being in the internet world, being eyeballs, to uh, you know, to something real. Well, here it's what it's what it's what makes it real is the uh, the case studies. Yeah, no, Dan, I think. That's a collective wish uh, that that we also have. Uh, so I I hope and I wish that your wish comes true. Uh, and thanks a lot for for your wisdom, Dan. I think I really enjoyed the conversation, and I'm very sure that our audience will as well. Back to you, Mark. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thank, thanks, Dan and Sora. That was a great discussion. To learn more about HFS, head over to hfsresearch.com, where you can view most of our research for free. Plus, we have a growing library of videocasts, just like this one, that you can take with you wherever you go. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next HFS videocast.